Across the globe, around 100,000 flights take place every single day. 9,728 flights are in the air, carrying over a million people at a time, equivalent to 0.1% of the total global population. While the wonders of aviation have made our world much smaller and culturally integrated, the environmental costs of this technology are more significant than any other form of transportation. Aviation contributes to 2.4% of global CO2 emissions, and when combined with other gases, vapor trails, and industrial pollution, this impact increases to an incredible 5% of climate change. So given the devastating environmental impact of aviation, how can we reshape our most efficient form of transport while retaining true accessibility to the wider world? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today, we chat with James McMicking, Vice President of Strategy at Zero Avia to understand how a new aviation technology based on hydrogen could pave the way to sustainability in an industry with no easy answers. Welcome, James. Hi, good to be here. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this aeronautical industry, if that's the right word and also a great deal about Zero Avia. Yeah, great, absolutely. So, I'm, I mean, I started life as a mechanical engineer, actually uh, in the automotive industry, um, which uh, has gone through some quite interesting uh, you know, changes in technology over the years. And I, I got into aerospace uh, from the automotive industry uh, by joining a company called the Aerospace Technology Institute. So that was set up in 2014, uh, to drive the UK's investment in research and technology for aerospace uh, products, to make the, the industry cleaner, more sustainable, and to keep the UK uh, competitive. And whilst I was there, one of the companies that uh, got funding from the ATI uh, was Zeravia. And it was a young company uh, just starting out. They wanted to build a hydrogen electric demonstrator aircraft and fly this and uh, came to the UK with uh, the support of the ATI to do that. And after a few years, I was looking to uh, move back into industry from that role. And uh, Ziravia had the right opening for me uh, within strategy. So I've uh, joined the team and it's a rapidly growing business. We've uh, continued to develop the technology uh, and it's really all about giving the aviation industry a, a true solution to achieving uh, zero emissions. Uh, the most sustainable and the most scalable uh, solution uh, to doing that. So that's what Zero Avia is all about. It's a powertrain company, uh, but we're looking to put this engine into uh, as many different aircraft as we can and as quickly as possible. And, and the model we have is quite unique. It's to retrofit existing aircraft. So we're not wait waiting for an airframer to develop a new airplane necessarily. 
Uh, we can take airplane that are already in the market, convert them to run on uh, hydrogen, and make them zero emission uh, in the near future. So this is not something that's uh, a long way away. Uh, it's uh, around the corner, in certainly in aerospace timescales. Amazing. Oh, okay. So not making your own planes. It's the retrofitting is the is the real the real focus. That's right. Yeah, you know, um, making planes uh, takes a long time. Um, and we're going to need new planes if we really want to use this technology well uh, in, in the long term. Um, but there's a whole fleet of aircraft out there, you know, tens of thousands of, of aircraft that have good life left in them. And certainly for the smaller aircraft, it's possible to do this. You can take uh, the existing turbine engine out, convert it to a hydrogen electric system and then put it back into service so it has a you know the rest of the airframe has a useful life the big airplanes that lots of us like to fly in our holidays in europe or across the atlantic they're going to need to be new designs really to use this technology effectively so that'll take a bit longer but that's okay because it's going to take us a bit of time to scale up the technology to be powerful enough to uh, propel those sorts of aircraft Now, if we were to step back and look at the aviation industry, you know, as a whole, how how, how big is it? Like, I mean, it's a, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, potentially a trillion-dollar industry. How many planes are out there? And you know, do you have any idea of the the scale of um, also of of impact that the aviation industry has on our planet? Yeah, this is a, a trillion-dollar uh, industry, you know, over the next decade, and um, so it's big business, uh, and it's rapidly growing. At least pre-pandemic, it was uh, rapidly growing, so or steadily growing, doubling about every twenty years. So um, these are products that are, you know, very high-value content. Um, uh, they drive a lot of sort of economic prosperity, if you like, for. The businesses and the companies that are involved in, in their production because it's difficult to do. So high barriers to, to entry to, to compete in the market. So the, the most popular aircraft are what we call these uh, narrow body jets. They're the sort of things that you know, a lot of the carriers out of the UK will operate to take us on our holidays. And then you've got bigger airplanes like the, the A380s, the jumbos, and the, what we call the wide body uh, fleet. And between those two, they make up the majority of value out, out there. About 85% of uh, the, the value in the industry is in those two types of aircraft. But sitting below them, we've got yeah, also important types of aircraft uh, from a mobility perspective uh, called regional jets and uh, turboprops. These are things that will tend to do more domestic travel or short distance international travel. And even below that, commuter aircraft that will carry us to the, the islands, let's say offshore islands, or connect small uh, airfields. And that's an interesting market and lucrative market as well. So there are literally billions of dollars to be made um, in this industry. And uh, so it's a very sort of attractive place to compete. But all of that growth comes with it, uh, you know, this, this carbon footprint, uh, this ecological footprint. Um, and that's what we want to address because it is one of the hardest industries to, to tackle. You know, these products require lots of power and lots of uh, dealing with conflicting design requirements. You need to make sure it's light, but you need lots of power out of it. And you've got to be able to fly long distances. 
So this is not an easy space to solve the the climate challenge in, um, but it can be done. And the way to go, in our view, is ultimately with hydrogen. And the reason for that is that um, the only emission is uh, water vapor, which uh, can be managed. And uh, ultimately, we can really eliminate the impact of flying because it's not just CO2 either. Um, there are other emissions uh, like nitrous oxides, uh, certain particulates, and uh, and also the contrails from jets. And all of these things contribute to the warming potential that comes from aviation. And, and some estimates put that at around 6 7 or so percent of total global warming today. And then factor in that the sector is doubling every 20 years. Meanwhile, all of the other industries are going to decarbonize more easily. Aviation is set to become the number one uh, polluter unless we do something about it. And that's what we want to do. Well, very, very noble cause and rising to the challenge, no doubt. Let's talk a little bit more about hydrogen. How is it going to work in an aircraft? Is it, you know, do you have to change the engine completely? We, we want to change the engine completely because we want to use the hydrogen in a slightly different way to how engines work uh, today. So uh, if I step through the different pieces of, of the system, uh, it'll hopefully become clear. So you've got to put the hydrogen on the plane is the first challenge, right? So you need a, a fuel tank uh, to contain it. And you can do that in, in two different ways. One is a gas. And if you want to get enough hydrogen on the plane as a gas, you've got to squeeze it into a small space, very high pressure, because hydrogen is a very light, light gas. Um, it takes up quite a lot of volume for the amount of energy you're going to get. It's a good gas because you get a lot of energy for a given weight. And obviously, one of the things we don't like on airplanes is weight. So that's what makes it an attractive fuel. So anyway, you can either squeeze that down as a gas, uh, but the tanks become quite heavy because they've got to be very strong. And this is very well-established technology. It's used in cars, for example, today. You have hydrogen cars, you have hydrogen trucks. They use gas tanks to store it. Your alternative is to liquefy the hydrogen. So you turn it into a liquid by cooling it to a very low temperature and storing it in a well-insulated tank. And if you do that, you get lots more hydrogen into a smaller space again. So that ultimately is what we want to do. We want to work towards uh, a liquid hydrogen uh, fuel system, but we can fly small aircraft using gas, which is very easy to do today, comparatively. So that's the fuel. Then what we do is we take the fuel and we put it through a fuel cell. And a fuel cell uh, works by taking the hydrogen molecules and taking air, oxygen from the air, and uh, doing a chemical reaction which releases an electrical current. Okay, so it's a, it's a bit like a battery, but it's it's not the same because it still needs to breathe in the air in order to facilitate that chemical reaction. So you then take that electrical current that the fuel cell gives you from combining the air, the, the oxygen with the hydrogen, and you run it through an electric motor, and that can spin uh, a propeller. Um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, the, the fuel cell creates the electric current. We have a motor that spins the propeller and pushes your airplane forward. Out of the back of the fuel cell, all you get is the combination of oxygen and hydrogen, which of course is water. So, you know, pure, uh, pure water comes uh, out of the fuel cell. You could drink it. Um, and obviously, you know, if we manage that 
correctly uh, will have no uh, impact on uh, the, the, the climate impact, if you like, uh, from the system. Is that the same system that's used in, say, electric buses and electric cars? It's it for some cars and some buses. Yes, you know, some of them are using fuel cells, but you know, some folks in the industry are looking at uh, combustion. So instead of doing this uh, chemical reaction, you burn uh, the the hydrogen with the air to get heat, and you use that to drive um, a turbine or to push your piston uh, in the engine. And and the reason we're not uh, pursuing that route is because you still get some uh, emissions that we don't want from the engine, and that's nitrous oxides, okay? Because when you have a hot reaction, uh, a combustion process, then you create nitrous oxides, and those have a global warming effect, but also a health uh, impact, uh, and it's an air pollutant. So we don't get those things when we use a fuel cell. The other thing is you get high-velocity water vapor coming out the back of the engine. And the problem in aviation is that leads to contrails and to the clouds that can uh, act like a blanket uh, over the world. And that's actually a significant contributor to uh, climate warming from um, aviation. With a fuel cell, we don't have that fast water vapor. It's generated much more slowly. And we can do something with that to manage it, uh, let's say, so that we uh, drastically reduce the impact um, that the water vapor has on, on kind of creating those cloud formations. Finally, a fuel cell runs at much lower temperature and pressure than a gas turbine and an engine. And what that means is uh, it can last a lot longer. An engine on an aircraft needs to be maintained uh, regularly because its parts wear out. It's dealing with very high temperatures and pressures. So you have to take it off the wing, you have to replace the pieces to keep it serviceable. And that costs money and time. Um, So our system will be uh, more robust uh, than that and will therefore reduce the cost for the operator. Sounds too good to be true, but obviously it's going to come true. I think it's pretty clear why you're not using biofuels or other alternatives rather than hydrogen. Are there any other feasible alternatives for aviation other than hydrogen? Not that, you know, directly deliver all of the same benefits. Batteries would be, would be great if they had anything uh, close to the same energy density that we need. Unfortunately, batteries um, are very heavy. And if you need the sort of energy we need to power an aircraft, you end up with batteries that are so heavy, you'd never get the aircraft off the ground. So that's, that's the problem with, uh, with, with batteries. They just don't scale. We'll see small aircraft flying with batteries, um, and that's uh, and that's great for those applications uh, because they're very efficient at storing the energy and giving the energy back, and they're simple, right? But there are other problems associated with batteries. Even if we could have a battery that was big enough to power the sort of aircraft we need, you'd need to change them uh, during the life of the airframe uh, much more regularly than a hydrogen fuel cell system. So. You've got this huge battery on an aircraft, you've got to take it out. You need to give it a second life or you need to recycle it and you need to produce a new one to go into it. And you can think about you know, the amount of material that's involved in doing that uh, over and over again. That's not a good thing. The other challenge you've got is squeezing the power into the airplane whilst it's on the ground, turning around to take you know, the next flight. You have to 
channel a lot of electricity into that plane in a very short space of time. You know, we know how long it takes to charge our cars up, for example, if you're an electric car driver. And, you know, there are fast charging stations, and, and that's good for something the scale of a car. Um, but something the scale of an airplane, you can imagine the size of the cables you're going to need to pump that amount of electricity in. Batteries don't like being charged very quickly either. So it, uh, it can degrade their, their lifetime, uh, which again means that you may have to replace them more often. Hydrogen, on the other hand, we can generate that hydrogen steadily over uh, a long period. And then you can move the, the fluid onto the plane much more easily than you could pump uh, large quantities of electricity into a battery on a plane. So batteries is really the only thing that gets close to the same sort of environmental benefit, at least at the, at the aircraft uh, point of use. Um, you mentioned biofuels there as well, and um, there are other types of fuels that you can make using electricity. So you, you effectively generate hydrogen using electrolysis, and you take carbon dioxide out of the air, and then you can combine those things to make what we call a synthetic fuel. But that, that takes up even more energy than just using the hydrogen alone. And even if we combine that with, say, biofuels, we still don't get to a genuine zero, uh, zero carbon solution. Uh, there is carbon involved throughout the process of generating those fuels. And we're very, very limited in terms of the feedstock, so the amount of material out there we can use to create biofuels. So it will never be able to fuel the entire aviation industry. And of course, there are other industries that need it as well. So we need another solution, and that's why we come back to hydrogen. Fantastic. What insight. Um, what are the constraints with hydrogen? I mean, are we going to be able to do the, 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 the distance? You know, there are now um, you know, planes that are able to fly between London and, and Sydney soon, uh, I think in 2025. Will we ever see hydrogen being able to do the distances that are, are, are available now with hydrogen? So eventually, uh, it is possible. There's no physical limitations on being able to, to do that. The planes are going to look different. And, uh, and, and the main reason is, uh, as I mentioned earlier in, in, in the discussion, the fuel takes up more space. Even when it's liquid, it takes up more space than jet fuel. But it's lighter. So what you need is more volume inside the plane to contain the fuel. So uh, you're going to look at slightly different places to put that fuel, uh, and the aircraft is going to have slightly different shape. But you can certainly carry enough fuel, uh, it's nice and light, to build an aircraft that could fly the sort of distances you're you know, suggesting. Now, quite a bit of work has been done uh, by independent um, organizations like the Aerospace Technology Institute to study this, and they released a number of concepts which included an aircraft that could fly anywhere in the world with just one stop. Um, so you, you could, for example, if you wanted to go to Australia, put a stop in uh, the Middle East and then uh, refuel and fly uh, to, to anywhere in Australia on hydrogen, at least with the concept that they created. And those concepts look not that far different to what we're used to seeing on the runway today. So it wouldn't be too much of a shock for passengers uh, seeing the plane. And they have very viable passenger uh, sizes, you know, that in terms of the number of people they could carry, very reasonable solutions. So I guess the point is, uh, to answer your question is, yes, it can be done, but it's going to take some time to get there.
Zero-Avi is going to start with a gaseous hydrogen solution, and that won't be able to fly super long distances. That will be specifically for shorter distances. And many planes fly uh, less than uh, 250, 500 uh, nautical miles uh, today. So there's a big market there for us using relatively straightforward uh, type of hydrogen. But then the goal is to to be able to fly aircraft uh, further uh, using our retrofit approach up to 1,000 nautical miles. And then we're going to see these totally new airplanes that can fly, as I say, four or 5,000 nautical miles and take us um, anywhere in the world uh, with, with one stop and potentially with no stops. Amazing. So tell us about the timescales. When do you think I would be able to buy a ticket or um, take a, a commercial flight between two cities with zero Avia technology? We're aiming to have our technology commercially available at the end of 2024. Um, so, you know, in reality, when, when would you actually be able to go buy tickets? Probably 2025 and 2026, once uh, these different routes are put into place. Um, and they'll be on little commuter aircraft. Um, so these would be things flying you know, relatively short distances. You could imagine um, you know, in the UK, airports connecting to the islands, uh, for example. Um, so up in Scotland or Cornwall to the city isles, uh, hopping across the country from you know, one airport to another where there's no good ground infrastructure to do the same journey as quickly. So these are the sort of early applications we're going to see for the technology. And there's, there's good reasons why you know, we start there because uh, the technology has got other benefits. It's going to be quieter. You know, it's electric. There's no sort of noisy turbine wine uh, to deal with. So it will be quieter, which is nice for small airfields, uh, closer to you know, small communities. Yeah. And there's no air pollution. There's no NOx to worry about. So um, there's, there's not so much to, to reject uh, from a, a sort of community perspective. And it will bring those communities greater connectivity as well to other regions that aren't well served by ground infrastructure, which is very expensive to put in place. So that's kind of your first opportunity, I would say, around the middle of this uh, decade. That's what we're driving to. And then by, yeah. by the end of the decade, we want to get to some of those bigger planes. So you might even be going on holiday in, uh, in Europe or uh, you know, doing some of these longer distance flights at the back end of the uh, 2020s. What are the constraints to, to making it all happen? Obviously, engineering, time, you know, lengthy planning processes and development, uh, R&D, et cetera. What, what's holding you know, the hydrogen aviation industry up at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so you're right. R&D, um, there's a lot of R&D to do. And you know, if, we can, if we can finance it, and, and we've been very fortunate to, to get good support from the UK government so far, uh, then, then we can move pretty quick on developing the technology. And we've got a you know, robust technology roadmap to get to the sort of applications we just talked about. The other angle, of course, is um, the regulatory side of this. So really important to step through the process with the regulator and, and achieve certification for the product. And that's what ensures it's absolutely safe for use, ultimately. And the regulator is still learning about the technology with us, right? And they need to write the rules and the things that we need to comply with um, as a business. So they need to be well-resourced and engaged in the process as well, um, because some of that stuff can take a bit of time. So there's a risk that that slows things down a little bit. And so you know, we, we are always saying you know, we need uh, the regulators to be really well-engaged, to be investing time and resource into developing those standards with the people um, developing the technology. 
to understand you know how do we make it absolutely safe so that's one and then infrastructure is the other challenge of course so uh, a bit like electric cars lots of people worried about where they're going to charge their car up it's, it's a bit different in aviation of course but we need to make sure we can refuel the planes and that's another part of the puzzle that we're cracking at zero avia we have developed a, a number of um, refueling demonstrators to show how that can be done. So we have a mobile refueler, it's a truck with uh, compressed hydrogen tanks on that uh, we can plug into the airplane's tank and, and refuel it um, uh, so it can go out to the aircraft to do that. We've also built a pipeline um, at our facility in the Cotswolds that can pipe the hydrogen from where it is generated on what we call the land side of the airfield um, to the air side of the airfield. And then we have a, a refueling system that manages all of that gas across that pipeline to fill up the plane. Um, we have electrolyzers so we can produce our own hydrogen. So we're demonstrating the whole hydrogen refueling system already. But what we need to do is create you know, commercial uh, options to that that we can put into the airports. And that's okay at a small scale, but we're going to need really big scale hydrogen generation going forward. And um, you know, UK government and many other governments have um, been rolling out roadmaps and plans for how to generate green hydrogen in the future um, using kind of big hubs. And so we want to work with those hubs to get the fuel to airports as well to make sure that we're able to refuel these aircraft. So in, in a nutshell, you're right, R&D, it's the regulations and it's the infrastructure that we all need to be pushing on really to make this a reality. Uh, is, there, you know, is there any psychological barrier when it comes to safety? I mean, obviously, jet fuels are highly flammable and you know, millions of planes fly every day around the world. Is hydrogen any less safe? No, they're different. And they have their different kind of qualities. But, you know, certainly if you look at hydrogen as a gas, it's safer in many respects, right? It uh, dissipates very, very quickly. So if you had a situation where there was a spill of a kerosene, you know, a jet fuel tank versus a hydrogen tank, the jet fuel is going to sit on the ground. Um, if it does catch fire, it's going to burn there for a long time. On the other hand, the hydrogen will float off into the air extremely quickly because uh, it's such a light gas. So it goes straight up, and that means the vicinity is very safe by comparison. It's, uh, flammability is very different. You get much less radiation when, uh, from a hydrogen flame, so you can actually stand much closer to it than you can stand to a, uh, a jet fuel fire. Uh, so actually, a lot of people can you know, receive burns from uh, a much greater distance with jet fuel than they can from a hydrogen flame, for example. So again, that, that's a safety benefit. So there's lots of good reasons to think that this is, um, you know, can be a perfectly safe fuel. Liquid hydrogen has its own specific challenges that need to be overcome, but uh, from a safety perspective, but this is a this is a substance that's been worked with for um, literally decades in the industrial sector um, and space sector, of course. We need to, you know, there's plenty of good experience, positive experience there where it's been used safely. We need to bring that into aviation to create you know, aviation-specific standards on how to work with it. Um, and this is being looked at you know, very thoroughly by the industry today uh, to make sure we can do that well. Public perception is a really interesting one, and we need to understand that and engage uh, 
the public in in that dialogue. But I am you know optimistic that uh, it uh, is not going to be a barrier to adoption, and people are going to embrace it because they're they're able to you know do positive things for for the climate, and um, we'll see it as you know a beneficial thing to be transitioning to. Being such a a large industry, are there are there many other companies out there trying to do what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, there, there are the big aerospace companies today that are already making planes. Um, they are taking an interest in using hydrogen, generally through combustion. Um, so using existing jet engines to to burn the fuel and use it that way. And you know, Airbus has made some interesting announcements around uh, doing a demonstrator using its A380 uh, to do that. And then they've also got an interest in hydrogen fuel cell, of course. Um, but there are a number of other startups like us um, out there, you know, trying to trying to do this. Um, to date, we've flown the you know the biggest uh, hydrogen fuel cell demonstrator, and, and we're going to be flying our second very shortly. That's an even larger aircraft. So there is a pack of uh, startups there that are really driving this technology and driving the industry to towards. Um, you know, genuine zero emission, which I think is overall very positive movement for the for the sector because it you know it pushes investment from all directions. So not just within our own business, but um, across the industry. So I think you know, that's promising. So we've got you know really fantastic uh, investors on on board. We've got Breakthrough Ventures, which is a Bill Gates Fund and Amazon Climate Fund, as well as a number of other venture capitalists. The the private investment side has been you know extremely positive story for the business, and it's really the coupling of that with the government investment that works so well. You know, government investment is is a strong endorsement of what we're trying to do, and that encourages private investors to put their money into these ventures. And so the two things work very well together, um, and that's what we're looking to continue uh, continue doing. This is difficult R and D as well. No one's saying this is is easy. And uh, doing a hardware startup is expensive. So having you know government support there uh, accelerates that progress. Uh, it means we can invest more faster and uh, work with more partners. Um, so you know it has an absolutely kind of net additional benefit to to the overall thing. And then it improves the risk profile for uh, the private investors as well, which means you know we're able to go and get additional private investment. So these things really accumulate quickly and that's what you know is going to make us successful and enable us to take the technology to you know bigger aircraft and have a bigger overall impact. So yeah, so far uh, an extremely positive experience on on those fronts and it's been really critical to the growth of the company. Looking forward to the day that people like Greta Thunberg could uh Say she's taking a, a hydrogen plane rather than um, needing to take a sailing ship. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, you know, is uh, yeah. flying is a really important thing uh, for the world, right? You know, it connects different communities. It, you know, we don't all have the time to sail uh, these long distances. Uh, and, you know, being able to connect different cultures and to share our ideas through flight and to trade, it's something that we're going to continue to need but we need it to be sustainable. You know, and that's, that's what drives this business. And that's why we're passionate about doing what we're doing. Thanks very much, James. Thanks for joining us on Racing Green. You're welcome.
That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green is produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, and Georgina McGiven in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios, Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow.